Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, it's Mithridates. No, one of the other ones. Mithridates of Parthia took charge of a relatively small kingdom that nominally held land south and east of the Caspian Sea. But by the end of his reign, he had turned it into a powerful empire that ruled from Syria to India and had grown to be the major rival to the power to their west, the Roman Empire. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 3, Mithridates of Parthia, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Mithridates was born in the 2nd century BC, the son of the king of Parthia. Parthia, east of the Caspian Sea in today's Turkmenistan and the Khorasan region of northeast Iran, was beginning to assert its independence from the Seleucid Empire at the time. The Seleucid Empire, one of the successor states to the Empire of Alexander the Great after the Wars of the Diadochi, season 2, began the 2nd century holding land stretching from Cilicia and the Levant all the way to the Indus River Valley. But as the century progressed, they started to lose their grip on many of those lands. Another one of Alexander's successor states, the Ptolemaic Kingdom in Egypt, also had begun to weaken. Moving west on the northern side of the Mediterranean, The kingdoms of Anatolia included multiple, relatively small rivals, with names like Pergamum, Bithynia, Rhodes, and Pontus, and we shouldn't forget the growing power in Armenia. By the middle of the 7th century, Macedon itself had fallen to the Roman Republic, the Roman maniple system fully proving itself to be superior to the Hellenistic phalanx. The Achaean League was a united Greek confederacy that controlled the Peloponnese, although it was eventually conquered by Rome. The Roman Republic stretched from the Balkan Peninsula west as far as most of southern Spain, although Celtiberians and other Celts remained in the northern part of the peninsula. To the north, in Gaul and in Britain, disunited Celtic tribes ruled, and Germanic tribes ruled further north and east. To the south of the Roman Republic, Carthage technically still existed, although the Third and Final Punic War started in 149 BC, resulting in the true end of that once mighty empire. Numidia, on the other hand, was flourishing under their king and, not coincidentally, Roman ally, Massinissa. And further east in Africa, south of Ptolemaic Egypt, lay the kingdom of Meroe, or the Cushite kingdom centered on Meroe. Moving west across the Atlantic, much of the Caribbean had probably been colonized by the Arawak-speaking Taino people by around this time, displacing the languages of the original peoples of the islands. In Mesoamerica, the Zapotecs had coalesced around the city of Monte Alban and had begun expansion into the surrounding territories. And the early Andean civilization known as the Chavan was declining, giving way to several more localized cultures in the region, including the Nazca. 
Crossing the Pacific, the Han Dynasty established itself in China at the turn of the century. In 154 BC, an unsuccessful rebellion by its powerful sub-kingdoms led to a more centralized empire. To their south, the Nanyue Kingdom was expanding and remained independent from China, at least for some time. To the north of China, the Xiongnu Confederation expanded and pushed westward. As they did that, they pushed the Yueji further into the Eurasian steppe, which was mostly ruled by Scythian and Samartian tribes. South of the steppe, to the west of China, in Central Asia, the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom, which had already succeeded from the Seleucid Empire in the prior century, was expanding south and east from Bactria, modern Afghanistan, into India, and the Indo-Greek Kingdom stretched well into the Indus Valley. On the rest of the Indian subcontinent, the Mauryan Empire had crumbled. The Shunga Kingdom ruled the east, taking over Magadha and the throne of Maurya. The Satavahanas ruled over the Deccan Plateau, and the Cholas and Pandayas were further south. When the Greco-Bactrian kingdom was pushed east into India, they were being pushed out of their western lands, that is, the territory west of Bactria. This western region was known as, among other things, Parthia. The Parthians, that is the people we now call the Parthians, were not from Parthia, at least not originally. They were, rather, part of an eastern Iranian nomadic tribal confederation known as the Dahe. The Dahe lived in the Central Asian region between the Caspian Sea and the Aral Sea, a steppe tribe. It is possible that they were the descendants of the Masagate, who, at least according to Herodotus, managed to defeat and kill Cyrus the Great. The people who would become the Parthians were one of the Dahe tribes, called the Parni, or the Aparni. So where is Parthia? Well, if you go to central northern Iran and you keep walking north, you'll hit the Caspian Sea. Turn right and start going east, the first region you hit is Hyrcania. But once you move a bit east of the lands right on the sea, you're pretty much in Parthia. In the middle of the 3rd century, it was part of the Seleucid Empire. This was, of course, one of the successor states to Alexander the Great's empire, an empire of the Diadochi which had, by this point, been around for about three quarters of a century. The year 247 BC was a significant date to the Parni, but we're not quite sure why. According to Edward Dabroa in his paper, The Arsacids and Their State, quote, the first leader of the Aparni known by name was Arsaces, who, perhaps in the mid-third century BC, conquered Astoini, a land between the river Atrek and the Caspian Sea. It is recognized that this event is connected with the beginning of the so-called Arsacid era in 247 BC, unquote. So, first of all, that river Atrek flows into the Caspian Sea. The western end actually forms the border between Iran and Turkmenistan today. We can assume this land is along that territory. And conquest may be a strong word. In his book, The Ancient History of Iran, Richard Nelson Fry wrote, quote, We may accept the migration more than an invasion of the Parni south from the area of Khwarezm into Parthia in the first part of the 3rd century BC. Khwarezm, by the way, is the area south of the Aral Sea 
and it's likely that the Seleucids never really controlled that region. Anyway, 247 is the traditional Parthian date of the beginning of their empire. But they hadn't yet conquered all or even most of Parthia. It may have also been when Arsaces was crowned as their king. Or, assuming they held lands in the Seleucid satrapy of Parthia by that point, what may have happened was that the Parni stopped sending any sort of tribute west to Antioch and the Seleucid court. Of course, we're pretty sure the exact date was a later invention, so it may have just been a later Parthian interpretation of when they began to take over independently. In 246 BC, the Seleucid emperor Antiochus II died, and there was a succession crisis. This was sort of the Seleucids' thing. Another one of their things was the weakening and splintering of their massive empire. As the crisis continued, the satrap of Parthia, a man named Andragoras, declared his independence. He wasn't the only one, as Diodotus, the nominal satrap of Bactria further east, did the same thing. The problem for them was that even if the Seleucids weren't coming to get them, they weren't going to come help them out either. We can't totally piece together all that happens. And it seems that Arsaces and his Parni tribe were pushed out of Bactria at some point by Diodotus. This would imply that the Parni had ventured to the south and east into Bactria, which isn't exactly shocking for a nomadic tribe. Likely, the Parni had been living, at least at times, in Parthia and Bactria for much of the century under Seleucid rule. But in 238 BC, Arsaces defeated Andragoras, that satrap of Parthia, and took hold of most, if not all, of his kingdom, which implies he had gotten into conflict with this former satrap of Parthia, but of course, we're short of details. Certainly by that point, Arsaces had established an independent foothold in Parthia although their seat of power was probably a bit further north in the city of Nisa, now the suburbs of Ashgabat, the capital of Turkmenistan. Regardless of the order of all these events, we are pretty confident that by the 230s, the Parthians were both in Parthia and independent from the Seleucids. So these independent Parthians were ruling themselves, and they began expanding westward. This brought retribution from Seleucus II in 230 BC, or at least an attempt at that, but he was unsuccessful. It's not clear that there was a major conflict, but it seems he marched an army out east and then withdrew. This may have been a combination of the Seleucids seeing the size of the Parthian force, or possibly just trouble happening back west. Either way, it upheld the Parthians' independence. Arsaces died in 211 BC, and just to add to the historian's confusion, Parthian rulers started calling themselves Arsaces in order to honor their first king. The Parthian version of Caesar in some ways, although it appears to come down to us from antiquity as a literal honorary name rather than a title. Arsaces' son, Arsaces II, did have to deal with another major Seleucid army, this one led by the much more impressive Antiochus III, known as Antiochus the Great. In 209 BC, he led his troops through a pass in the Alborz Mountains south of the Caspian and fought the Parthians over the course of a week. In the end, Arsaces II's army fled and he had to sue for peace. Able to keep his lands as a vassal to Antiochus, the Parthians lost their independence for the time being. 
But within a decade, Antiochus had turned all his attention west, fighting a war with the Ptolemaic Empire that drew in the Roman Republic and saw Hannibal acting as one of his advisors. But Antiochus was defeated, and rebellion began to simmer in the east. He marched out, but was killed around Susa in what was once Elam. At this point, the east was out of the Seleucids' control, and Parthia was once again independent. And this time it lasted a while. The Parthians solidified their rule in Parthia and expanded west, conquering Armardia, the lands of the Mardi, on the southern shores of the Caspian into the Albors Mountains. The king, Phraates I, did this with an eye to the west. He was looking to conquer Media, and he was looking even further west, as the Seleucids were preoccupied with issues closer to their center of power along the Mediterranean. Phraates died around 165 BC, and his brother succeeded him to the throne. There wasn't a noted succession crisis. This may have been prearranged either by Phraates or by their father years before, and it wasn't an uncommon thing among Central Asian nomads for a younger brother to inherit the throne rather than a young son. The hard life of steppe nomads probably made a regency for a child king a bit less acceptable. So, perhaps remembering their origins only a few generations earlier, the new king was Phraates' brother, Mithridates I. Mithridates took over in 165 BC, and while we don't have a record of any sort of internal strife, it doesn't look like he turned immediately to what he is most famous for, conquest. Rather, he may have spent a few years establishing authority over the area south of the Caspian, perhaps as far as the mountain passes that led to the Caucasus. But by the end of the 160s, he had turned his attention east, towards Bactria. Bactria had been made vulnerable because of several factors, and Mithridates was able to take advantage. The Greco-Bactrian king, Eucratides, was dealing with war to his east in the Indus Valley region, and couldn't easily contest the invasion. It seems Eucratides came to a settlement with Mithridates, and the conflict was resolved. Now we get some confusion in the sources. Most of them suggest Mithridates walked away with a chunk of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. But those chunks are named Teporia and Traxiana. Okay, you might say, what's the big deal? Well, Teporia is pretty well understood to be the part of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom just south of the Caspian Sea. That is to say, the area I was talking about a few minutes ago known as Armardia. Meanwhile, Traxiana was a little further east and probably overlapped some with modern-day Khorasan, which is, wait for it, the general area where the province of Parthia sits. So, what gives? Well, what is likely happening is several different modern, let's call them interpretations, conflicting with what life was like on the ground. First of all, the ill-defined regions meant that drawing lines on maps might not be so easy to do. Secondly, the ill-defined control of the region, as the Seleucid Empire broke up, contributed as well. Multiple kingdoms could have influence or control over some of these areas, all depending on which king happened to be staying there that night. So, Phraates may well have conquered lands to Parthia's south and west, where the Greco-Bactrians held some sway, despite the fact that the Seleucids felt like it was their land. You know, like, even if the Greco-Bactrians claim independence, they really work for us, so if they control that region, then we do too. 
and Parthia itself was carved out of Greco-Bactrian land, so Phraates probably expanded his control further. What Mithridates may well have accomplished in his march toward the heartland of Bactria was getting the Greco-Bactrian kingdom to officially acknowledge what was already the de facto situation further west. That the Greco-Bactrians, as well as the Seleucids, had lost all control of Parthia and Teporia or Amartia or whatever. It also seems that Eucratides, preoccupied with the war in India, accepted some sort of vassalage to Mithridates in Bactria. While like many of these things, the Parthians might not have had much control over the region, technically it meant that it was now part of his empire. And, with full control over a growing core of an empire in what is today northern and northeastern Iran, as well as southern Turkmenistan, Mithridates was then able to really work on expanding his kingdom. Since he had worked out a solution with Eucratides to his east, he turned back west to the mess that was the Seleucid Empire. He was poised to move into Media, thanks to his brother's conquests nearby, and that's just what he did. And taking Media really meant taking the regional capital of Ecbatana. Ecbatana was at that point a major city for at least five centuries, maybe more. It was the capital of Media when Syaxares, Season 5, Episode 3, conquered the Assyrian Empire. After Cyrus the Great conquered the Medes, the city became a summer capital for the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Alexander the Great took it, and his successors made it the capital of one of their satrapies. We don't have evidence of the conquest, but it appears it was still in Seleucid hands as late as 148 BC. Inscriptions in the region by the Seleucid satrap suggest as much, but by the next year probably, it had been overrun, as Mithridates appointed his brother as the new governor, probably in the year 147 BC. The Seleucid Empire, though, was disintegrating everywhere, not just where the Parthians were marching. Down south in Susa, maybe in the very same year that Mithridates marched into Ecbatana, the satrap there declared his independence and began calling himself king, or Basileus, of Elamias, the Seleucid term for Elam. In 141 BC, Mithridates conquered Seleucia on the Tigris, a major city near modern-day Baghdad. Seleucus Nicator, the empire's founder, had made many people relocate from Babylon to his new city, and it became one of the most important cities of the Hellenistic world. Mithridates also took Babylon, which at that point wasn't nearly as important, but it was symbolic nonetheless. After the Parthians took it, Seleucia remained a major and Hellenistic city. There may have only been three or four cities west of India with a higher population, and it appears that the city didn't change much under Parthian rule. Further south, the Basileus of Elamias submitted to Mithridates and the Parthians, but within a year or two, he allied with the Seleucids to try and fight back. It did not go well. The Seleucid king Demetrius II had been ousted from parts of his kingdom by a usurper, Diodotus Tryphon, although he still held sway along the Mediterranean coast. According to the Cambridge History of Iran, quote, During the spring of 140 BC, he gathered a force and moved into Babylonia and perhaps Media. Apparently, Demetrius II hoped not only to recover these provinces from the generals of Mithridates, but also to raise in the east loyal reinforcements with which he could return to overcome the usurper Tryphon. In the following year, 139 BC, 
defeated and taken prisoner by one of the Parthian generals, he was paraded through the cities which the Parthians had won, unquote. He was sent north to remain in captivity, but was treated relatively well. Years later, he was released in order to foment trouble in the rump Seleucid kingdom, and actually was able to regain his throne for a time. Meanwhile, that defeat he suffered in 139 BC was where the king of Elamias had tried to help old Demetrius out. Mithridates brought his troops down to Elamias and thoroughly looted the region. Perhaps while he was down there, he also ended any resistance that remained in Persis, the southern region east of Elamias that was the birthplace of Cyrus and the Achaemenids. Persis may have had more autonomy than other regions, although it's unclear whether this was because of honorary historical reasons or simply because it was just expedient to do so. Mithridates died in 132 BC, a little less than a decade after he finalized his main conquests. He had greatly expanded his kingdom. We don't know much about his life, but we know he wasn't simply a brutal conqueror that laid waste to the lands he took. After taking the great city of Seleucus on the Tigris, which, remember, was one of the most important cities in the Hellenistic world, the king struck coins where he referred to himself as a Philhellene, or friend of the Greeks. This was just common sense after creating an empire that took over one of the Hellenistic successor states, but it wasn't necessarily the only way to go. The average person in the region may not have spoken Greek. They were probably Zoroastrian, not worshippers of Zeus. But after nearly 200 years since Alexander's conquest, the leading men of these cities, cities like Seleucia and even Ecbatana, probably were Greek or Greek-influenced locals. So Mithridates signaled that they were safe under his rule. The Parthian elite were almost certainly Zoroastrian, but with such a large empire, religion was far from uniform. And again, to rule this vast multicultural empire, the Arsacids did not try to impose all of their beliefs on their subject people. Religious tolerance was a common thing among empires in the region. According to Craig Benjamin in his book Empires of Ancient Eurasia, quote, when Jews and Christians were persecuted by the Romans during the first two centuries CE, many of them moved to Mesopotamia, now the heartland of the Parthian realm. The ancient cities of Mesopotamia became even more cosmopolitan under the Parthians with Zoroastrians, Jews, Christians, and pagans coexisting in apparent harmony, unquote. But beyond that, what this reflects is the more general Parthian approach of a multicultural amalgam as a way of rule. They brought with them their traditions as steppe nomads, which is more than just people who ride horses. It's the whole Indo-Iranian culture that dominated the region. They coupled this with the Hellenistic traditions of their immediate imperial predecessors, and they eventually, although perhaps after Mithridates the first rule, we're not sure, began using Achaemenid terminology as well, and referencing their rule as an extension of that once mighty Persian empire. So the Parthians didn't come and sweep away the old, they embraced it, and most of that began under Mithridates' period of great expansion. Parthia remained an important place for the Arsacids, and the city of Nisa, an old capital, is thought to have been a royal burial place. Mithridates is rumored to have founded the city, although it's probably more likely that it was already a capital, and perhaps he ceremonially refounded it. This could have meant building a new fortress there or some other important building. Whatever happened, he also renamed it Mithridatkert, the fortress of Mithridates. 
But the heart of the Parthian Empire moved away from the satrapy of Parthia into the Mesopotamian and western Iranian regions, similar to that of the Achaemenid Empire. Mithridates built a royal residency in Ecbatana, that is to say he made it one of his capitals. He did the same in Seleucia, and also in Tessaphon, or rather, in a military camp on the other side of the Tigris River from Seleucia, which eventually became the city of Tessaphon. The two cities soon merged into something like one big entity. In many places, the Parthians left the local rulers in charge. Pliny wrote of 18 kingdoms in the Parthian Empire, and as the conquering slowed down, the local kingdoms tended to have more power, at the expense of the Arsacid Emperor. The empire didn't really fragment and fall apart, but eventually one of its sub-kingdoms took advantage of the weakening central authority and took over. Before all that, though, after the death of Mithridates, his son Phraates II took over the Parthian Empire. The Seleucids pushed into Babylon and defeated the Parthians in several battles, but the Parthians bounced back and routed the Seleucids, which resulted in the death of their king. Syria was their next target, but the Uege, along with the Saka, were busy smashing the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. Phraates rushed east to defend his lands and was killed in battle. His successor, too, was soon killed fighting steppe nomads in the east. That emperor's son was also named Mithridates, Mithridates II, and he took over. He was about as successful as the first Mithridates, solidifying the Parthian hegemony and making the empire the mainstay of the region over the next few centuries. Mithridates II took over in 124 BC and he defeated the nomads and helped significantly improve the security of the eastern borders of his empire. He also worked to solidify rule in Mesopotamia, which had atrophied some as the focus had turned east. Parthia continued to grow in power and began interacting more with Rome in the first half of the 1st century BC, as Lucullus and Pompey found themselves in Armenia and eastern Anatolia chasing after a different Mithridates, Mithridates the Great of Pontus. Season 1, Episode 3, a big part of the inspiration for the concept of this podcast, that guy. Conflict with the Romans kicked off in earnest a decade or so later, when one of the three unofficial rulers of the Roman Republic, part of the triumvirate, Marcus Crassus, marched east to his governorship of the province of Syria. Crassus decided he could prove his military might and make a fortune taking on the Parthians. Instead, in 53 BC, Crassus led his 40,000-plus men into what would be one of Rome's greatest defeats, the Battle of Carai. The Parthian force was significantly smaller, perhaps about 10,000 men in total, but it was highly mobile, and estimates say about 20,000 Romans were killed, and another 10,000 captured by the Parthians, mostly due to poor generalship by Crassus, who had made a series of bad decisions leading up to and during the battle. The remaining Romans were led to safety back in Syria by the Quaestor, who, according to Plutarch, had suggested a much more effective battle plan, but was ignored. His name was Cassius, and he ended up successfully defending Syria, keeping the Parthians from taking it. And he later helped kill Julius Caesar. That same year, Cassius helped lead the plot against and then assassinate Caesar. Caesar himself was planning an invasion of Parthia to regain the standards and reverse the humiliation of Carai. After his death, the Parthians took sides in the Roman civil wars. 
Later, they faced invasion by Mark Antony. Despite some setbacks against the Romans in the preceding years, they were able to defeat Antony's massive invasion force that was numbered at an insane 80,000 or more men. Antony lost at least 30,000 of them by the time he had successfully retreated back to Roman Syria. The Parthians and Romans soon had a period of relative peace, at least with each other. The Parthians dealt with revolts and internal conflicts throughout the first half of the first century AD. Parthia remained, as did Rome, and warfare resumed, mostly in the form of invasions of Mesopotamia by the Romans. The emperor Trajan advanced all the way to Susa, although after he left, Babylonia and anything south revolted against Roman rule and returned to the Parthian fold. After all this internal warfare, as well as external warfare with Rome, which included multiple invasions of their western territories, the Parthians were no longer the power they had once been under the two Mithridates. Wars with Rome in the 210 AD resulted in another Parthian victory, but the empire was continuing to fight on its own turf. Eventually, one of their subject kings, Ardashir, the king of Persis, season 3, episode 2, rebelled against his Arsacid overlords. He defeated them in the Battle of Hormozdegan in 224 AD, effectively ending the Parthian Empire and ushering in Sasanian rule. The Parthians started as a nomadic tribe from north of Parthia. In their wanderings, they moved into the areas of Parthia and Bactria. Over a century or two, they became more settled and less nomadic. They became part of the Seleucid Empire, perhaps the Greco-Bactrian kingdom as well. They shook off Seleucid rule in the 3rd century BC, but then had to resubmit to them, at least nominally. Eventually, they gained true independence, although when Mithridates became king, the Arsacid dynasty ruled a small and relatively insecure kingdom with a somewhat tenuous hold on northeastern Iran. But by the time of his death, the Parthian Empire was a true empire, ruling from Babylon in southern Mesopotamia, across Elamias and Persis in the south, Media and the Caspian shores in the north, to Parthia and Bactria. He ushered in three centuries of Parthian rule across the region, an empire that was a worthy rival to Rome during its height. Mithridates, in his conquests, as well as his flexible approach to rule, was the Arsacid ruler most responsible for their success. Next time, we'll move a couple centuries ahead to beyond the eastern edges of the once great Parthian Empire. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>